Well, turn, if you will, to Genesis 19. We are going through the life of Abraham. Uh, and uh, this morning, um, you know, the week before Thanksgiving, uh, we're looking at, uh, at Sodom and Gomorrah. This afternoon, I'll be preaching a, a Thanksgiving sermon. So if you want to finish the day well, then come back at four at the Baptist Church in East Bruton. Uh, let me remind you uh, from 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture... All Scripture, Genesis, Revelation, all Scripture is breathed out by God. That means He inspires it, it is authoritative, and it is true. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So we're going to read the whole chapter, uh, and then we'll dive right in. Genesis 19, hear now the word of the Lord. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself uh, with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. (laughs) They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, All the people, to the last man, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door behind him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and you do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. They said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to, the, to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house and with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against His people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh, no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest a disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, and I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore the name of that city is called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. And the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. 
And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife, behind him, looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in him, uh, in and lie with him, so that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn, firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, uh, we pray as we come uh, to the preaching of your word that you would, by your spirit, help us to understand. Uh, may we see Jesus clearly. We pray for unction and anointing for the preacher and the hearer alike. These things we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, there's some passages in Scripture that everybody knows about, whether you're a Christian or not. We might say John 3.16 is one of those. Everybody's heard of that one, or at least most people have. The 23rd Psalm, also one that most people will have heard of. But I bet a close third would be Sodom and Gomorrah at least to know kind of what it refers to. You know, one of the strengths of preaching through the Bible, uh, we usually take uh, chunks of a a, a book of the Bible like we're doing now in Genesis, going through the life of Abraham, where we just take a whole book, is that at some point God is going to deal with most issues. And so when we come to those, we, we deal with the issues that God puts before us. You may be surprised, however, to find that this text is not just about homosexuality, although it it is about that, certainly not less than that, but it's also about the dangers of being too close, too closely intertwined with an ungodly society. We see this in Lot. Lot does not come out shining very well in this text. We also find in this text about how God in His mercy delivers His people. God very forcibly, by His mercy, saves Lot and his family here. This morning, uh, what I want to do is I'm going to do it a little different than we, we usually do. I'm going to teach this passage instead of preaching it. Uh, there is a little bit of difference. You, you might be able to feel it as we go through. I'm going to teach it rather than preach it. So what I'm going to do is we're going to walk through the text. It's a long, long text. Talk about what happens. And then at the end, we're going to draw out uh, four principles that we can learn from this text. Okay, that's, that's our game plan this morning. May the Lord bless it. So let me give you some background. Uh, by the way, in your outline, I've kind of had fun with some of the titles. And uh, Roman numeral number one, Ancient Near East Soap Opera. I mean, there's this just drama all over this. I mean, there's just drama everywhere. 
Um, chapter 18, though, to back up, give us a little context. God visits with Abraham and Sarah. Sarah's super old. She's 89. Right? And, and yet, God tells her that you're going to have a child next year when you're 90. Uh, she laughs. She doesn't believe God. And praise God that a year later, she will indeed have a child. At the end of this chapter, uh, we see Abraham conversing with God in an incredibly unique passage. And in that passage, in that conversation, God, uh, Abraham asks God not to destroy Sodom if ten righteous people can be found there. Having read the text, you now know that there are not ten righteous people in Sodom, and God does indeed destroy it. Well, God had visited Abraham with two angels. So it was the Lord and two angels. And so the Lord stayed and talked to Abraham. Meanwhile, the angels supernaturally were transported the 20-some-odd miles to Sodom. This is kind of... we have These things are really happening at the same time. The, the angels seem to be arriving about the time that Abraham is talking uh, with God. And so there they are, 20 miles away, and they arrive uh, at the city gate of an ancient city named Sodom. Now you have to understand about the, the gate in an ancient city was this is where the leaders and the judges sat. To sit in the gate was a big deal. The gate is where all business was conducted for witnesses around you. This is where your cases were tried. This is where you'd enter into deeds and contracts. And to sit was a big deal. It was a position of authority and influence. And so at the very least, we learned that Lot was very influential in this wicked city, Sodom, perhaps even a leader. When the angels arrive, he follows the customs of hospitality of the day, Lot does, and he bows down before them. This seems strange to us, but it wouldn't have to them. And he offers them hospitality. In the days before hotels, when people showed up in town, they would go to the town square. And if you found some of the town square and they needed somewhere to live, to stay for the night, you would offer that hospitality to them. And so even before they get to the town square, perhaps Lot is afraid of what would happen if they stayed in the town square that night. He offers them to stay at his house and to leave early in the morning. It was customary. It would have been uh, wrong for him not to do that. But, but equally so, it would be wrong to refuse. Because if you refuse, it might seem like you're holding out for a better offer, a nicer house, a richer meal. And yeah, This is what the angels do. <laughs> they say, no. Uh, it must have taken a lot a little bit by surprise. He doesn't know they're angels at this point, but, but he presses them hardly. Uh, because I would imagine he's afraid that if they stay in the town square that night, what's going to happen? It ends up happening at his house anyway. Well, so in verses uh, 4 through 11, we find that they did indeed stay with with Lot that night, and he gave them a meal. And yet before they could um, lay down, before they could go to sleep, there is an attempt to sexually assault the sojourners, the visitors, whom we know are angels at this point, but they don't. So after they had eaten, there was this commotion outside the house, and Lot's house was surrounded by the men of the city who desired to have homosexual relations with the angels. They just thought they were good-looking visitors. It wasn't just a few of the men. The text is super clear at this. Look at verse 4. Look at verse 4. This is a, a key verse here. 
But before they lay down, one, the men of the city, two, the men of Sodom, three, both young and old, four, all the people, five, two, the last men, last man surrounded the house. All the men of the town surrounded the house. And what they wanted was in verse 5, and they called to Lot, where are the men that, who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Now, to know in Hebrew is an idiom for sexual relations. We, we read in, in the beginning of Genesis that, that Adam knew his wife, right? They had a child. They wanted Lot, who had promised safety to these angels, to bring them out so that they all might abuse them violently and sexually. Homosexuality was a very common practice amongst the Canaanites, where we are now looking. And here we see that it comes to so define the city that all the men came out in riotous form to, to participate. It was across generations, and apparently they expected Lot both to agree and to participate with them. Now, at first, Lot shows a lot of courage. <laughs> what does he do? He hears the commotion. He knows what they want. He goes outside. He shuts the door behind him. He puts himself between the, the crowd and the, what we know are angels. And he says, don't do this, guys. Don't do this. This is a wicked thing. Wow, that's, that's pretty courageous. But then it's just downhill from there. What does he do? He, he really messes up. He actually offers to, his, to the crowd his two virgin daughters as a substitute for the two angels. Are you kidding me? Are, are you kidding me? What a failure as a, as a husband and a father. There, there, he, there's no doubt that he's in a tough spot here, right? But this was not the solution. This was not the solution. Now, some commentators try to explain this away and try to help Lot out. It's, pro- it's probable, it's, it's likely, it seems to be true that the sons-in-law to whom they were engaged were in the crowd as well. Wouldn't that make Thanksgiving awkward, right? Maybe they would have saved them. Maybe they wouldn't have done these things because their connection... But this is not, this is not good. The crowd of men, though, do not accept this and instead threaten to do the same and worse to Lot. And then they try to break the doors down. At this point, we learn, or at least Lot does, learns that these two visitors are not just men. There's something special about them. They reach out and grab Lot from outside and and strike everyone with blindness. They were previously spiritually blind, but now they are both spiritually blind and physically blind. And what's scary is in verse 11, we find that even after they are struck blind, they are still trying to get to the door to the angels. That's a scary thing. In verses 12 through 14, we see the angels now take charge. Now takes charge of, of, uh, of the situation. Soon uh, they will destroy the city. Rather, God will. We'll see that very explicitly later. They have come to save Lot and his family because of Abraham's prayer. They will not sweep away the righteous with the wicked. That's what actually Abraham prayed for. It's going to be referenced later in our text. And while Lot doesn't exactly shine in this passage, verse 29 makes it clear that God spared Lot because of Abraham. So the, all, all the, so the angels tell Abraham, excuse me, Lot rather, to go and get everyone who's connected with them. This is, this is a, an, a, an open invitation. Hey, Lot, anybody that's connected to you, anybody you want to see saved, go and tell them. 
There's destruction coming. There's judgment coming. Get them and let's go. It's really explicit. They're saying, hey, it's time to leave. If there's anyone you want to see saved, go and tell them. Well, so he goes and tells his sons-in-law, two of them, what's about to happen. And uh, they don't take him seriously. They think he's jesting. They think he's laughing. Uh, it's the same word, by the way, in Hebrew as what, Isaac, uh, excuse me, what a- uh, Abraham and Sarah do. They laugh at the Lord when he says that they're going to have children. It's the same word in Hebrew. They don't believe what's about to happen. Before we move on, though, and before we get to the destruction, we, we should note that the people of Sodom had a lot of warnings. First, Lot had told them not to do this wicked thing. Second, Lot had told his sons-in-law. Plus, we have to remember that back in Genesis 14, the inhabitants of Sodom, everybody who's living here, they had been kidnapped by invading armies, captured, and were heading to either certain death or certain slavery. And God used Abraham to save them. And then they witnessed a religious ceremony between Melchizedek and Abraham. They had a lot of warning. And they had turned away from those warnings. In verses 15 through 22, we see that Lot wasn't taking his own advice. Morning begins to dawn, and where is Lot? He's in Sodom. The angels warn him again to leave now. And then we read the strangest thing in the whole text. There's some strange things in this text. The strangest thing, though, is in verse 16. Lot lingered. Really? Lot lingered. By the way, what an what a application right here. Don't linger. Right, today is the day of salvation. Uh, call upon the name of the Lord while he may be saved. If you're in sin, don't linger. Turn to Jesus. Lot lingered. Well, at this point, by the mercy of God, and we're told that, that this is why it's happening, that God being merciful to Lot, in his mercy, he causes his angels now to no longer just persuade, persuade with their mouths. They actually seize Lot and his wife and their two daughters. Four hands, four people. And they drag them out of the city. Let me tell you something. What would you do at this point if you were those angels? I just say, Psh, forget you guys. By the mercies of God, He is more merciful than we are, certainly than I am. And they get out of the city, it just gets stranger. Lot begins to negotiate where he's going to go. Uh, the angels turn to him and say, hey, go to the hills. Go to the hills. So, oh, no, 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 no. No, my lords, he says. Really? You, you see that city over there, you know, the one that you're about to destroy? That's just a little city. Let me go there instead. God agrees, and he lets them go to Zoar, and therefore Zoar is not destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah in the valley. Verses 23 to 29, we see the promised destruction come. Verses 24 and 25, this is the center of the judgment in this text. Then the Lord, this is Yahweh, all caps, then Yahweh rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from Yahweh out of heaven. And He, God, overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. There's no natural explanation for what happens. Selected cities in a selected valley were destroyed by God. In two short verses, three times the destruction is attributed to God. Twice His divine, holy, personal name of Yahweh is used. Sin is always personal. 
When we sin, we are personally sinning against a holy God. And the judgment is likewise personal here. But God's judgment also reached this little band of four who had been seized and were fleeing from destruction. The angel had told Lot, his wife, and the two daughters clearly not to look back. But we find in verse 26 that Lot's wife, we're not given her name by the way, I think that's significant, Lot's wife looked back at Sodom. Okay, now lest you think this is one of those, she caught the reflection of Sodom in a mirror or accidentally looked over her shoulder and then was destroyed and then it wasn't fair. Uh, The Hebrew word means to gaze intently. She didn't just look at Sodom, she looked to Sodom. She is actually in Zoar, the angel makes it clear, he can't act until they make it there. And she gets there and she is longing for Sodom. She wants both rescue and the worldliness of Sodom. And in the end, she gets neither. And she is turned by God's judgment into a pillar of salt. Verses 27 through 29, 20 miles away, Abraham wakes up and he goes out to the place where he had met with, um, with God the day before. And he looks out and he sees the destruction. And the smoke is coming up like it might from a furnace. Letter F, in, I had fun with this one, in your, uh, in your outline. You can't make this up. He just can't make this up. Because the final scene in verses 30 through 38 are even stranger. It's a bizarre situation because Lot, having been delivered from God, by God from destruction, having negotiated with the angels to live in Zoar, now leaves Zoar because he's afraid. God has preserved him, and now he's afraid. And where does he go? He goes to the hills where he was supposed to go in the first place. Not out of obedience, but out of fear. Now, caves in the Old Testament were used for two reasons, for burials and for refugees. And so here is the man who had originally had to separate from Abraham because he had so many flocks and so many herds. So now he has nothing. And then his daughters get him drunk and get pregnant by him. And then two of the greatest enemies of Israel, the Moabites and Ammonites, can be traced back to this account. What's that line, and, and so are the days of our lives? Right? I mean, you, you just you can't make this stuff up. Well, let's shift gears then. That's, that's the text. What do we learn? The first is this really did happen. Okay? We need to affirm that. This really did happen for these reasons. The account of Sodom and Gomorrah from Genesis 19 is one that is heavily criticized by our culture and liberal theologians and by those who seek to normalize homosexual relationships and behavior. To say that this didn't happen raises all sorts of problems. We could go at great length, go to great length of why that would create problems. But first of all, it would mean that the Bible is not the Word of God. Because if some parts happened and some parts didn't, then how do we decide which ones are true and which ones are not? If this isn't true, then how are we to say that the resurrection is true, that Jesus really was raised? And, and the Bible's real clear in 1 Corinthians 15 that, that if Christ was not raised, we are still in our sins and we are the most of all to be pitied. The Bible really is a zero-sum game. 
It is either true and inerrant and infallible, or it is not. There is no middle ground. God's Word has authority over us, and we submit to it because of the one who wrote it. All Scripture is breathed out, that is inspired, that is written by God. The second thing, though, and this is the obvious one, is that from this text we learn that homosexuality is sinful. Now, it is true that homosexuality is not the only sin that is here. That's real clear. In fact, the prophets are going to say that one of the reasons why Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed was because of the fact that they had ignored the poor and the widow. There was great injustice. There was. And there are many applications in this text of all the sin. I mean, there's just sin everywhere in this text. But the most prominent is homosexuality. Sodom had become so defined by homosexual activity that it has further descended into the acceptance of sexual violence and abuse. Now, we let Scripture interpret Scripture, and Jude verse 7, so there's one chapter in Jude, so you write it Jude 7. You don't have to write a chapter number. Jude 7 interprets the Sodom story as specifically referring to homosexuality. Let me read it to you. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, let's talk about homosexuality, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. You know, certainly this, this isn't the popular view. In fact, in Canada, for me to preach this, I would go to jail. That's considered hate speech now. And by the way, if it were passed here, I will go to jail. I will stand here and say it. Homosexuality, even when consensual, even when what the world calls committed homosexual, homosexual marriage, which the Bible doesn't uh, identify, it is against God's law, has created order, and his desire. The Bible is very clear on this. Anytime we engage in activity or even desire, even the desire for something that God does not want for us, it is sinful, whether in thought, word, or deed. That is an application from this text. But let me tell you good news, because we can't stop there. We cannot stop there, because the good news of Jesus is that he came to save lost sinners like you and me. And there's nothing that God cannot forgive. There's no one beyond the love, the mercy, the grace, or salvation of Jesus Christ. I love what we learn in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Let me read to you first verses 9 and 10. This is a passage to jot down somewhere. Anytime you, you, someone wants to talk about homosexuality and the Bible's view of it, this is a great text because it holds out both the sinfulness of homosexuality amongst a whole host of other sins and the hope that we and anyone who struggles with homosexuality has in Christ Jesus. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. This is bad news. By the way, homosexuality is not the only sin in this list. Thieves, those who are defined by greed, that's how our economy works in America, isn't it? Drunkards, revilers, those who are unrepentant of sin. On this list and, and any other sin, 
unrepentant, will not inherit the kingdom of God. But there's phenomenal, fantastic, wonderful, almost too good to be believed kind of good news. And that's the next verse, verse 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. See, Corinth, to whom uh, Paul was writing in 2 Corinthians, is just like Sodom. And there was a lot of homosexual activity in, uh, in Corinth. It had come to be known to... Um, well, it was, a, it, was a, it was a byword for homosexual activity. Corinth was. And out of the Corinthians... Those who struggled with every sin on this list and more, Jesus called His people, forgave them of their sin, washed them of their blood, sealed them with the Holy Spirit, made them righteous before God. Such were some of you. Isn't that good news? There's hope in Christ for everyone. Whatever sin you struggle with, Whatever sin you struggle with, turn from it and turn to Jesus. For such were some of you. And so here's what the world says, those who struggle with homosexuality or same-sex desires. For one reason or other, the world will tell you, well, you are defined by these things and therefore you are a homosexual. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says come to Christ and be defined by Jesus. And find not only forgiveness but help in your struggle grace in time of need, strength to fight temptation, whatever that temptation is. And we're promised that that Jesus will help us with our desires, our sinful desires, whatever they may be. That by His Spirit, He causes us to grow in holiness and daily to be able, enabled more and more to say no to sin and yes to God. There is hope in Jesus. No matter what your sin looks like. And that's what would have been true of all these men in Sodom. If they had turned to the Lord, they would have found forgiveness, found hope and help in time of need. My friends, that's that's what we have to offer the world. Hope not only in this life, but also in the next. You know, we will struggle with sinful desires until heaven, whatever those sinful desires look like for you. But there's hope in Jesus. He will help us with our desires. And we yearn for the day when Christ comes again, makes all things new, and removes from us even the desires for the things which God does not want for us. May the Lord come quickly. By the way, if you want to talk about these kind of struggles, come see me. It won't be the first time I've had these kind of conversations. I've helped others. Let me help you. But there's more application here. Notably, Lot was too close to Sodom. You know, if, we, if you followed our, our study of Abraham and his life, first, Abraham, excuse me, Lot pitched his tent near Sodom. And then we find he had moved into Sodom. And, and now we find him sitting in the gate of Sodom. He had gone from being near to end to being a leader. And obviously... Sodom had gotten a hold of him. He had been deeply influenced by this wicked city. Why else would he offer his daughters up? 
And obviously, he had not exactly raised his children in the fear and admonition of the Lord because of what his daughters did at the end of the story. Lot had to be dragged out of Sodom. You know, when you become part of a community that is opposed to the Lord, often find, you'll find that the community becomes part of you. To paraphrase one commentator, it's hard enough to get Lot out of Sodom. It was harder still to get Sodom out of Lot. As he negotiates with the angels, as he lingered, it's good to live amongst unbelievers. We ought to, to tell them about Jesus. We also be careful about who is influencing whom. What about you? Have you been so heavily influenced by our culture that what you watch and what your neighbor watches are the same thing? Do our words that come out of our mouth sound just like someone who doesn't know the Lord? Are we giving the same amount of money to the Lord in missions as our unbelieving neighbors give to the United Way? These are uncomfortable questions. Have we, have we pitched our tent too close to Sodom? Finally, one of the, I think, and it probably is the main point of this story, true story, this account, is the reality of the judgment of God. And indeed, throughout Scripture, Sodom is used throughout Scripture. Sodom appears all throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New. Jesus used Sodom as a way to point to judgment. Throughout it, Sodom is used as a warning to those who don't become Christians. 2 Peter 2.9 is, is one that is perhaps the clearest. By turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, He, God, condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. God is a just judge. He is a just God, and as such, He punishes sin. And this punishment broke into the present. It broke into the present. By the way, this is going to happen to the entire promised land 400 some odd years later when God brings his people back from Egypt. At least he's supposed to. Where whole cities are destroyed by God's judgment through his people and sometimes not through his people. But the judgment of God crashed into the present with Sodom and Gomorrah, but it is a small thing compared to the reality of hell that you and I deserve. Upon death, there are but two destinations, heaven and hell, and your preacher deserves to go to hell. The pastor of this church deserves to go to hell. We deserve to be punished forever in hell because of our sin and rebellion against God. Remember those, those early verses that we talked about, those verses everybody knows, John 3.16? Did you know that hell is in John 3.16? For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not what? Should not perish. Do you know what the word perish means there? It's not talking about bodily death. It's talking about eternal death in hell, conscience death in hell that you and I deserve. But praise be to God. Can I get an amen? Praise be to God that what I deserve, what I deserve, not, not someone who fits in the context of Sodom. What I deserve, what you deserve, Christ has taken upon Himself at the cross. That Christ took the wrath of God that you and I deserve so that we might be forgiven. That Christ was punished for us. That we who deserve eternal death, that ever believes in Him, should not perish, but have eternal life. 
everlasting, never giving up, now life that begins at the moment of salvation. Are you struggling with sin? Perhaps one that we've talked about today or or some other? Come to Christ. Do not linger like Lot did. Run to Jesus. Because he really did come. He really did die. He really was buried and he really was raised on the third day. And because of that, we know that his sacrifice worked. And that those who look upon the Son and believe in him, John 6 tells us, will have eternal life and Jesus will raise him up on the last day. There is hope, my friends. The story of Sodom is left in Scripture to warn us all. Don't relegate it to someone who struggles with some uh, certain flavor of sin. Don't relegate it to that. Don't, don't say, that this text isn't about me. This text is about God's just judgment. And we see His just judgment most prominently on display at the cross of Jesus. Where according to Isaiah 53, it says, It pleased God to crush His Son, to lay on Him the iniquity of us all. And so this gift is freely offered to those who would trust in Christ. You have to receive it, though. Your mama can't receive it for you. Your daddy can't receive it. Your husband can't receive it for you. Your mama can't receive it. No one can receive it for you. You have to. Trust in Jesus. For one day, there will be a day of judgment. And this is the thing that ultimately points us to this text. As bad as it was at Sodom, it'll be worse on the day of judgment. Because upon our death, our eternities are set and sealed. And we will all all stand before the judgment seat of God. And we will either have to answer for ourselves or Jesus will answer for us. He will say, no, that one's mine. He's been covered by the blood. And we will hear our Father say, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. We thank you for the good news of Jesus. By your Spirit, point us to the loveliness of Christ. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.